Friday afternoon, everyone. I'm Zach Keeney, joined by Matthew Fish, and we welcome you all to another Cyber Roundtable. If you haven't already, make sure you check out last week's webinar on YouTube. We had Daniel Welling on from the MSP Finance team, uh, who joined us for a conversation around key performance indicators to determine whether or not your MSP is growing in the way you'd like. And we discussed CIS uh, IG, oh, excuse me, CIS version 8 control 16 application software security. If you're new to the roundtable this week, make sure to check out our educational video library on YouTube and like us on LinkedIn. Today we have Brett Callow and Luke Connolly joining us from MCSoft, who's celebrating their 20th year anniversary, to discuss the Move It vulnerability 90 days after the fact. We'll do introductions in a moment, guys. But first, tell me, tell me about uh, Captain Crunch being the original hacker, Luke. You kind of dropped that bomb on us, right? I, yeah, I, I want the rest of the story. <laughs> so I had to look it up. We we actually had this this discussion started thirty seconds before this, which is a uh, naughty time to. Drop and then they said, "I'm going to ask you about it." And I, I just remembered that Captain Crunch was the original hacker because uh, Zach mentioned Captain Crunch. The guy's nickname was Captain Crunch because. Captain Crunch cereals used to have giveaways in them in the 60s and 70s, little toys. One of them was a whistle, and AT&T used to have in-band in signaling for its, um, I think, uh, 5ESS phone switches. And he found out that the whistle that Captain Crunch gave away could be used to hack into AT&T's phone switches and get free long-distance calls. And they were called um, freaks at that point, phone freaks, P-H-R-E-A-K-E. R-E-A-K. And, and after that, there was a whole little subculture of, of freaks, phone freaks, who, who made little boxes in order to make long distance calls and how many times they can go back and forth across North America just for the point of doing it. So that's the that's the long version. Now, I, guy's name, his name was uh, John Thomas Draper, and he's 80 years old this year. Okay, Mr. Wikipedia. Yeah, well, that, it's only his name that I got off Wikipedia. The rest I knew. Well, he knew I was going to start grilling him with questions. So, he Well, I, I remember some trivia about that era, though, which is, um, you know, when this be started becoming a popular subculture, there were some other people that were not, you know, the freakers were, um, you know, I guess this is before we called them hackers, right? Called them freakers. And they were like... You know, this was 70s, 80s, 90s subculture of people that were just trying to, like, understand how machines work and systems work. And and really, these are the same people that built the Internet. Right. Um, however, there was another culture of people that found out about these freakers. And from what I understand, that type of in-band signaling to avoid being charged for a long distance also kept you off the pen registers. You guys know what that means? No, that means untraceable phone calls when people are doing. So before they did before wiretaps were, were sort of commonplace with button push, you could like just tap a phone call. Um, you used to have to send someone out on the line and they'd have to listen there in a van or with like up on the pole. And so or you'd, or you'd have tape machines, but then you'd have to change the tapes a lot. Um, and so what they would do instead are what were called pen registers. So they would just keep track of um, who called who and when. Um, but apparently like not only did you avoid the billing system, um, with those types of attacks, but you're also able to like the government couldn't trace who was calling who basically. Um, Wild. and that, that was that a simpler was, time. It How was far simpler, we from? <laughs> well, so, uh, the, the, the guys, the guys that they wrote the RICO laws for were taking advantage of this. Um, and, uh, and, and like basically our, our, our phone networks are a little more secure now because of that. Um, but anyway, that's well, and, and the phone companies actually wanted to be paid for long distance. I'm not sure which one was <laughs> that more was important. important. That was important for them for sure. Well, it's, it's embarrassing when you're up on the, you know, when there's an FBI agent up on the stand telling the public why, why they couldn't get this guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, guys, we're excited to have you here. Where, where are you guys joining us from? And, and all of our, our virtual guests, feel free to chime in on the chat and uh, where you guys are joining us from as well. We're both in Canada. Um, I'm on the best coast, Vancouver <laughs> Island. Luke is somewhere in the middle. I'm in Ottawa. Brett's on the left coast. 
Are you guys starting to get excited about the hockey season coming up or no? Not even slightly. You know, when Vegas starts to win the Stanley Cup, I, I lose interest. Yeah, that's very fair. Well, we'll, we'll transition with that. Great. We are super happy to have you guys on for, uh, for a discussion this week. Uh, give us all a quick introduction about yourselves and uh, just a brief one about MCSoft before we jump into our control of the day. Brett? Yeah, I'm Brett Keller. I am a threat analyst with MCSoft. I and the company have particular expertise in ransomware. We have decrypted some fairly well-known strains and been involved in some fairly significant cases over the years. But primarily, we are an endpoint protection company. And as somebody has already mentioned, we are currently celebrating our 20th year in business. Congratulations. And I'm Luke Connolly. I have to apologize to Jason already, I see, because he was born and raised in Las Vegas. It's nothing against Las Vegas. It's just like any place where it's it's only uh, a desert. It's 80 at Christmas. I don't think should be should be eligible to win the Stanley Cup. But I'm biased. <laughs> so I'm based in, in Ottawa, Canada, where it is supposed to be 90 degrees Fahrenheit this week. Um, but uh, it, we do get snow in the winter. And I've been with MCSoft for about a year and a half. Um, I'm in sales, so don't think of me as being too technical, but I am a, an engineer by education and, and a project manager by education. Well, we're happy to have you guys here and Matt's going to go ahead and, uh, do a little lecture for us and teach us a control. All right. But first, oh. first, a little dance. <laughs> So we're looking today at CIS controls version 8, control 10, malware defenses. Um, so for those of you not familiar, CIS controls divides up um, most of the technical um, interventions that a security architect would put in place to defend an organization into 18 controls. Um, and each of those 18 controls are split up into sub-controls. So the category or the domain malware defenses uh, is split up into seven parts. And uh, while there are some fairly sophisticated um, added value um, areas that ma anti-malware tools tend to integrate um, functionality for specific reasons or to attack specific threats or stop specific threats, um, the Center for Internet Security says, hey, there's, there's, there's seven basic things you should have in your malware defenses. Um, and... If your product and if a combination of your malware product, anti-malware product, and your system configurations cannot do these seven, <coughs> not defending yourself effectively from malware. Um, and, and and on the screen here, if you're if you're chimed in on video, um, you can see um, a, a data dimension where we have implementation groups one, two, and three. So implementation group one, which is the first three parts. Uh, is for every single business um, should have these things in place. Um, implementations two and three, which are for organizations that at the very least have some dedicated people in charge of their IT. They probably have custom software or infrastructure that maybe goes beyond the off-the-shelf variety. Um, and they may or may not be... Um, affected by uh, regulatory impacts or threats to human safety. So anyone that's not a small business um, and using exclusively off-the-shelf software, um, anyone that uh, is concerned about confidentiality, anyone that's regulated or, or needs to protect human safety um, also needs subparts four, five, six, seven. And I'm just going to shoot through them real quick. So 10.1, deploy and maintain anti-malware software. Um, that may sound like an obvious thing because, uh, as you know, when you install Windows these days, anti-malware software is turned on by default. Um, it may not do some of the other things in the malware defense category, but it is shipped on. Um, so if you're if if is that uh, in the Captain Crunch days, <laughs> it, it, this is relatively new, right? Because it, it didn't used to come with operating systems, and in fact, if you're on a Mac, um, there's limited anti-malware out of the box, right? And even on Windows, there's limitations to the built-in software. Um, but at the very least, make sure make sure it's installed. 
Um, also, I would add to that, make sure it's turned on because people turn turn off their malware solutions for any number of reasons that they may consider to be valid, like it slows my machine down or I just don't like it. Um, but, you know. <laughs> Some people like to not use that seatbelt too in the car. Yeah. Like, hey, I get it. Have it, have it installed. Um, have it turned on. Um, and there's this keyword here, maintained, um, which as we go into uh, 10.2, um, you know, you'll you'll see that the second part here is, and make sure you have your signature updates running automatically. Don't 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 be 10 days behind or 30 days behind or you know even three days behind. You should be getting updates if not daily, um, even more frequently than that. Um, the 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 third one here, uh, and this may sound like it's like it's unrelated, but um, disable auto run and autoplay for removable media. For many 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 years, many computers by default. When you plugged in either a USB device or you put for the days when computers had disk CD disk drives, when you inserted that media, the computer would automatically play whatever was on that um, media, and it it could easily be a virus. Um, in fact, it's you know if if you've watched like Mr. Robot on TV, you'll see that they broke they broke the guy out of prison because they sprinkled USB drives in the parking lot, right? Um, so, because um, <laughs> the, the, the prison was supposedly not on the internet. Um, and so they, to break in, they had to, they had to use physical media. And actually this is a thing that happens in the real world. Every month I'm seeing some out of band attack, um, where people are breaking into companies, um, through those physical media. And, and, um, so you need anti-malware systems, even when you are disconnected from the network and, and configure your OS not to autoplay that stuff. Um, the 10.4, and this is where we start with the more advanced controls, which um, covers almost every end customer um, of anyone that's watching this stream, um, but uh, also um, configure anti-malware solution to scan that removable media. And this would stop a user from manually executing something that could be there. It would also stop them from maybe sneaker netting like a PowerPoint presentation or something between computers and leaking a virus from one system to another system. You know, anytime media is plugged in, it should be scanned. Um, sometimes this is turned off by default. It does slow down that already slow removable media, but uh, it is important to to scan when you plug things into your computer. Or, or my favorite, um, don't even allow remo removable media. I, I honestly don't think it's defensible these days to even need. But we're all in the cloud, right? Uh, we don't need to be plugging in USB drives. Um, 10.5, enable anti-exploitation features. Um, this is something that software developers can do when they're developing software, but it's also something that um, through memory randomization and and, and other things um, uh, can be turned on at the OS level. Um, so, uh, you know, some people turn these features off um, because they either they want to speed up their computer or because they want to, uh, uh, they're, they're concerned with, uh, I, I'm thinking of a scenario where you're on, you're on a Mac and you go to install something and there's this thing called gatekeeper that gets in the way, right? That's an anti-exploitation technology. It's, it's there to keep you from installing something funky. Um, and so I guess what they're saying here is have those features turned on, even if you have to sometimes make exceptions. Um, centrally manage anti-malware software. Um, and this is where the, the default, uh, this is uh, control 10.6. This is where the default anti-malware solutions really fall down. Um, it's important to have anti-malware solutions. So you are catching easily detectable pieces of malware, but if you're not reporting home that, Hey, I found a piece of malware someplace, um, your IT manager, your custodian, who's in charge of keeping systems clean isn't going to know that there's a piece of malware on a system. And just because it was detected by a, a malware tool doesn't mean that there's not some kind of cleanup action that a person needs to actually make. It's also possible for every piece of malware that was detected, there was another piece of code that was missed. Unfortunately, that's the truth these days, that um, while automated um, solutions can catch malware, they don't catch 100% of malware. And so you do want eyes on any situation 
where there's a detection. I mean, if you're not reporting that home someplace, no one's going to know. Um, and then the last thing is user behavior, anti-malware software. Um, I'm not going to get into the technical definition here because there's a lot of different ways that this can that, that this can be manifested in, in software. But it's best practice these days to use anti-malware software that goes a little bit further than just, is this an exact piece of attack code I've seen before? It's looking at the types of behavior that's normal on a machine, the types of behavior that's abnormal on a machine, and it's able to stretch into scenarios that maybe are something like a bad scenario, but is not an exact bad scenario that it's seen before. Um, and so that's where we talk about behavior-based or heuristic-based detections. And um, that should be part of just about any, any anti-malware suite these days. So all of these things are required in anti-malware defenses. Um, and before you consider deploying um, other types of anti-malware systems, please make sure you've ticked every single one of these 10.1 through 10.7 boxes. So that's that's it for CIS Control 10. Um, whew, I'm glad that wasn't like the 14 or 17 point controls we've we've gone over the last few weeks. Um, and we have a we have a comment here from a anonymous person on LinkedIn that has their uh, their privacy profiles here. And end users should not have local admin to even be able to turn off their EDR. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a good it, it's 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 a compensating control required when um, you know you're worried that EDR may be turned off. Is don't let the people turn it off, right? Um, but uh, that that comes that's somewhat outside the actual anti malware control and goes into the secure configuration of the machine to make sure users aren't monkeying around or or admins or engineers aren't monkeying around because we're the worst monkeys. I know that. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a really good point. That's exactly the type of thing I do. Like I get, I get really annoyed if I don't have complete admin privileges over my own computer. Um, <laughs> and, and the end consequence is that if someone does have admin privileges, they, they will end up looking at stuff and the, the possibility exists that either accidentally or possibly even maliciously, they'll misconfigure the endpoint protection and things bad may, may occur. Yeah, and I don't, I don't get um, too in depth with individual end clients um, every day these days. You know, we're running a software company over here, but um, I know I, I've done a lot of security engagements in the past, and in ninety five percent of them, you go in there and you say, "Wait, no, your whole IT team does not get local administrator access. In fact, none of you should have local admin. There's not actually a reason to have local admin unless you're trying to circumvent security." Um, you should be setting your systems up so they're usable by your IT or your engineer staff so they don't need local admin or even any type of admin, which which leads to some other controls where we talk about, hey, you know what? Those super user privileges should actually be a totally separate user account. You know, you shouldn't be able to do any of that stuff with the user that you're using on your PC. You should have a totally separate credential, different username, different password, maybe different computer for doing those things. Reminds me of a a comic that I saw a while ago and I, I just found it and pulled it up and, and it's a boxing ring and the announcer is going in this corner we have firewalls, encryption, antivirus, blah blah blah. And in this corner, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Dave's gonna Dave's gonna find a way to get that to sneak that uh that threat through or that that uh, not good thing through. Human error. Dave has a human error shirt on. So uh we love Dave though. He's trying his damn best. We're here because we're at a three-month anniversary line, right? Um, it's been we're ninety days in to to move it. Um, Brett, um, what can you tell us? So, I mean, I I can't avoid it. You know, it's it's been literally in my mailbox every day for the last ninety days. First from the ice house, right? Then the news agencies, and then like just people crying um, over their breakfast cereal. Um, <laughs> For those We're of us, maybe, references. We're gonna get sponsored. For for those of us that maybe don't even know what Move It is, um, you want to give us a little context here. Yeah, and I suspect quite a lot of people don't actually know what Move It is, and even if they do, they probably don't realize how widely it was used, um, or the size of the organizations that are using it. It's a file transfer platform from Progress Software. And as it turns out, it's used by lots of financial institutions, um, governments, 
banks, insurance companies. Um, and Why would somebody want to hack one of those guys? Mm, indeed. And at the end of May, it was discovered to contain a good old SQL vulnerability. By the time that discovery was made, a ransomware operation known as CLOP had already exploited it and started stealing information. As of now, we know that more than 1,000 organizations were impacted by this. And the data breaches have affected about 65 million people, a bit more than that at the moment. And they are only the cases that we know about. New cases are coming out of the woodwork each and every day. According to IBM, the cost of a data breach uh, equals about 165 bucks per record. If that's accurate, and I'll make no claim that it is, that would put the current cost of movers at about $10 billion. So huge, huge sums involved. And pretty much every company that's involved is being hit with a class action some of them more than once and the legal situation here is going to be a very complex nightmare uh how do things look for move it i really don't know um certainly a number of companies have said they are no longer going to use it how many will look to another product? I don't know. The issue here, though, is possibly that other file transfer platforms have been exploited. Excelion FTA, for example, which Klopp also hit via a zero day. There has been a current and ongoing issue with Citrix file share. So where do you go? Well, the, the last two attacks that smelled a little bit like this one that I recall, um, we had a Microsoft Exchange attack. We had a SolarWinds supply chain attack. Similar levels of um, organizations impacted. Also, in both cases, these were centralized key pieces of backend infrastructure, right? They didn't, they didn't impact the endpoint, right? It was core parts of the network. In this case, um, MoveIt's... You know, it's not just like we're moving files around. We're moving like the most critical data that each organization has, you know, either between places in the organization or between organizations. It's like this information was so sensitive, you needed to go out and build extra special infrastructure just to move it. Um, and just so, move it. And <laughs> so in both of those cases, let's think of those two lo locations. So in the Microsoft, in, in the Microsoft incident, um, people forgot about it, or maybe it just like blended in with all their other feelings about Microsoft, right? Um, in the SolarWinds attack, I don't know if you guys know what happened to SolarWinds, but it was cracked up by its private equity owners into a bunch of component parts. And um, some of them, some of those parts went away and some of those got like churned out. And uh, some of those parts aren't called SolarWinds anymore. They've got like new company names. They broke so, it up into an every man for yourself situation, huh? Yeah, I would not be surprised if this destroys the Move It brand. If not the technology itself, the brand's probably dead. <laughs> so that's a, that's an interesting. If it's let's assume it kills the brand, but obviously there's still a need for that type of 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 software. I don't know if that's the right word. I guess it is. Um, do you think that that scares away other organizations from from continuing to utilize other brands that are similar? Do you think somebody creates um, a different kind of solution? Um, are we going to go back to you know shipping USB drives to each other? What what does this do? It's really hard to say what will happen. I think organizations certainly need to think about how they can transfer data more securely. And a part of that is data minimization. Don't leave sensitive information sitting in your file transfer application for longer than it needs to be. Get it off there, put it somewhere where it can be stored more securely. And even then, like you could, 
people say, well, I encrypt it. I encrypt my data and I put it in a, in a repository so that my partner can, can retrieve it. But it was just uh, last week, I think, that CISA issued uh, an advisory about um, that, that companies should start to prepare for quantum, quantum computing. And, and the, the, the assumption is that passwords for encrypted files will be easily uh, broken in seconds with quantum computing. So there is uh, movement now of uh, take now, break later, where encrypted files are being gathered by uh, the bad guys. And presumably when they get access to quantum computing, they'll be able to crack them. And if the data is still of value at some point when they're able to do that, then they can take advantage of it at that point. So Brad, Brad asked this question here, which I think sums up what we're just discussing right now. What could one have done to protect themselves about this vulnerability? I think it's related to what are people going to do now, right? So this is part of a larger industry trend, but it's it's not going to be a fast. There's not this is this is an ongoing process in the industry of moving away from batch file transfers towards um, APIs with high security authentication and encryption, and not having files sitting around at all. Um, even either if they're sitting around, they're encrypted, right. Or they're in protected data stores, um, or really not having files sitting around because people should be accessing the data in a secure authentication method. But, but what that requires is ripping and replacing everything that uses these batch data transfers. And in, um, I don't know how you Canadians doing with, uh, with your, with your tax systems. Is that, is that done yet? Are we, uh, did they rewrite you guys still on those AS 400? I, I know, I, I know down South of the border, we're still on mainframes, but I, I know I've been watching what's going on up there with that, with those government systems. Um, and they're, they're not easy to replace, are they? They aren't at all. And this historically has been a problem and it's the root cause of many of the problems that we now have. Yeah. So I, I think at the, at the very least, um, at the very least, we should stop building systems that use files that move around. You know, um, we should be using APIs. And um, as as security professionals, when we see someone building a new solution like this, whether they're engineering software or they're just building a workflow inside a business, you know, ask yourself, do we need files flowing around at all? Isn't there a more secure, safe way to do this? You raise a good point too with the with the AS four hundred, which was a fantastic reference. It brought me back, um, in in that we're dealing with applications to a large extent that have been developed or at least spec'd out at some point in the past. And when you when applications have been when the requirements have been defined, uh, security has not been one of the leading requirements. And uh, again, Seaside, I think just a couple of weeks ago issued um, uh, their their recommendation for. Um, design principles based on uh, secure by design, and it's going to there's going to be some lag before things become serious enough, and applications, uh, the application creation cycle uh, evolves to the point where many, if not most, of the applications that we're using on a day-to-day -day basis are actually largely secure. I don't know what the development practices are. Move it. I don't know if it's a good product or a bad product or the company behind it. I would assume they're, you know, they they had the best of tense of intents with the product, and they were just the unlikely victim that a cyber criminal gang happened to get their teeth into. But uh, I mean, Brett, it's reasonable to assume that that could have been any one of a handful of other products that offer the same kind of service, right? They were just the unlucky ones. Yeah, absolutely. And a handful of those other products have already had very similar problems. To answer the question how organizations can defend against this type of attack, there's no quick and easy answer to that. Um, in part, it's a matter of understanding what your network normally looks like. Um, if you understand what's normally happening, you have a chance at spotting abnormal activity. But again, the whether or not you do that certainly isn't guaranteed. Which is why when you build security, you know, you don't say, say well, we got a secure file transfer server and we're good, right? You, you build systems within systems um, and the security um, guidance I typically 
um, advocate for, depending on the organization, has anywhere between 100 and 500 moving parts in it um, to compensate for, well, if this fails, what's our next protection? If that fails, what's our next protection? If they all fail, how do we know when we failed? And when we, when we failed and we know we failed, what do we do about it? Um, be How do we be prepared for it? How do we recover quickly? It's, it's um, clearly that's, that's why we're all in the, in the security field, right? <laughs> well, and, and you, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, Matt, you said uh, that nothing catches everything. And that sort of speaks to something I saw uh, earlier today on Reddit. Uh, someone in the MSP group posted, uh, why are uh, secu- cybersecurity software companies such uh, um, expletives in, in their, in their, their approach? <laughs> And it's, you know, some people said, well, it's, it's boring and, and, you know, you, you sort of have to get attention somehow. But the fundamental truth is that no, no single application is going to protect you against everything all of the time. And uh, some companies sort of want you to believe that they can do that. Um, you know, I wouldn't trust the, 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 the nuclear launch codes to any software, including our own company. And, and I think we have a really, really good product. I think you'd want to have, a, a, as you said, a bunch of layers of protection. You want to understand the context and, and get some perspective about the potential threats, the value of your assets, and what you can do to protect them. So um, we had this critical infrastructure um, all over the world. Tens of thousands of com- organizations we're talking about here, right? That's that's the, the, the realm of the size we- here. We don't know how many. We don't. We don't know, we know how many. that more than a thousand have been affected, but how many more may have been affected, we don't know. Yeah. So you know, it's it's. Um, but then there's the second order effects, right? Because one company may have data for ten other companies or hundred other companies, may have data for millions of people, right? So it's so big impact blasted a hole in their security because there was this critical piece of infrastructure that was directly exposed to the internet and inside that thing was all the candy and jewels right um is this still like do we feel like this is solved now so the movement as an organization they came out with a fix pretty quick i think it was just in the first few days right yeah, it was within the first few days of the vulnerability being. So I, I, I remember there was an embargoed release through my ISAO that said, "Hey, you guys should update, move it." And then a few days later, we got the details, right? Of okay, here's this vulnerability. And then a few days later, we started hearing about all these hacks, and oh, like this is actually humongous. But presumably, there was a period of time there, right? Where if you were paying attention, you would have, you know, if you're on, if you're on some kind of threat date, um, threat feed, if you're a member of an ISA, you're getting this notice early, you can react early, you can, you can, uh, you, you know, you can contain. Um, I wonder if, I wonder how many, uh, how many organizations were um, negatively impacted because they just didn't, they didn't do those basics, right, of paying attention. Yeah, again, that's really impossible to say and something we'll probably never know. Some organizations do claim to have detected and mitigated the attack. Um, But in at least one of those cases, CLOP has published data it claims came from that organization. So tell us about tell us what you know about CLOP. Klopp, we know they are probably Russia-based. In the past, they used to deploy file encrypting malware, but they have increasingly started to exfiltrate only. They steal data and totally bypass encryption. That's become a increasingly common tactic generally. And more and more ransomware operations and no longer encrypting data as they used to. They simply steal us. And for those who who may not know, and I'm I'm sure many, 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 if not a hundred percent know, quickly describe a ransomware attack and how what the difference from a, a different type of attack is and how a human error could potentially be present there. Yeah, so what ransomware actually is, 
isn't totally clear. Is it the malicious software that encrypts files, or is it more broadly any form of attack in which data is held to ransom? The ransomware task force seemed to be applying that second definition. Anyway, ransomware attacks can start in multiple ways. It can be via good old phishing, unpatched internet-facing software, compromised credentials. Once the attackers are in, they move laterally throughout the network, they exfiltrate data, and then optionally they exfiltrate the data too. Uh, they then demand a ransom to either unlock the encrypted data and or to delete the copy of the information that they stole. How often does the paying work out in terms of quote-unquote getting your data back? That's not clear because there is so much secrecy around incidents. We really don't know how many do pay. Best guess is probably about a third and the majority of those do successfully recover most of their data what's to stop an attacker who who returns the data from have made from having had made a copy of the data or from you know creating some type of situation where they're returning you something but still positioning themselves to continue to be malicious absolutely nothing and um, they claim that they care about their reputation, their brand, but of course they only care about that for as long as they are operating that brand. As soon as they move on to a new one, and they do cycle through on a fairly regular basis, some of them, um, they are free to do as they wish with that old data. Matt, you've been a part of a ton of these, you know, you're, you've been in the security world for a really long time. Um, if you were obviously it's not the case and you know you're not making any recommendations on this on this webinar, but if you were tertiary to a situ situation like that um, and and somebody was looking to you for guidance on well, okay, the thing just exploded. What's my next step? What is that? It's such a hard one. Um, you know, I want to say we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? That's the thing that like I want I want to say. Um, the reality is these situations are extremely um, individual. Um, you know, an organization that di did not have adequate protections in their data in place, like let, let's say they don't they don't even have effective backups. Um, an organization that maybe you know didn't have um, uh, security enclaves, so maybe maybe there was an incident that affected a relatively low um, low importance system. But because it was, you know, mixed in with higher security systems, you know, they, they lost some really important data that really could have been more protected. You know, that that organization is going to be in a much different situation than, um, you know, a medium sized organization where someone's front office worker just, you know, gets their local machine attacked. And, you know, in those cases, um, image the machine, um, don't pay the ransom, ignore it, you know. Um, but, but, you, you know, Brett brought up this point about the lateral movement thing. You know, if, if we rewind this 10 years ago, the attackers weren't very smart. They were just launching um, what are called worms out onto the Internet. Um, you know, it was like one machine that would attack another machine, would attack another machine. There was no people behind it. Um, and, and the machines would encrypt your files and then they'd have like an address where you could send the money. And if someone was stupid enough to send the money back, like someone would then be able to create a business out of this. But unfortunately, this little cottage industry businesses with not very smart malware have turned into enterprises. Some of these enterprises, you're talking about these attackers that might exist in Russia. Um, these are these are organizations with thousands of employees. These these threat organizations, these, they're they're big businesses. They're billion dollar businesses. It's not Captain Crunch hanging out in his mom's basement. It's yeah, it's not, it's definitely crunch. not. So they're they're breaking in, um, and they're moving both vertically through systems to to gain increased privileges and laterally. And you don't even if if the first time you know you've been breached is the ransom demand, it's probably way too late these days. And the assumption should be the attackers got everything on offer in your organization. If that's how you found out about it, because they don't burn the house down until they've got the whole jewels. 
the, the whole crown jewel collection. They're in there for weeks or, or in most cases, months rooting around in systems. This is someone's job or a whole team's job to just extract every bit of data they can get out of your organization and then demand the ransom. So, I mean, if you're in a municipal um, city government and all your systems are down and you literally can't provide basic services to your citizens, it's really hard for me to tell them, yeah, don't pay. Um, the reality is most of these criminal businesses have reputations to protect. And when they when they fail to um, defend their reputations, just like any brand that's not defending its reputation, they, they cease to exist. And so they tend to do what they say, although they don't always. Um, they tend to... Um, they tend to, you know, it's a, it's a standard financial transaction. You pay them, you get customer service. They have ticketing systems. They've got help desks, right? They've got AR and AP departments. These aren't, these aren't hackers, right? As individuals that are looking to explore computers, right? And make a quick buck. These are huge criminal organizations. And when they demand money these days, it's not a random demand. It's a calculated demand at the edge of what they think you're willing to pay um, and sometimes they'll be wrong. They'll get the math wrong, but, but next time they'll take that data and they'll demand a different amount. Um, and they unfortunately are, you know, they're just running wild. Um, and we, we, we barely ever catch them as, 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 you know, organizations, as governments, we, very few of these organizations get taken down, um, in a timely manner, you know, there's a rampant industry out there. So when they demand the ransom, I guess the question you have to ask yourself as a business is, can you afford not to? Um, and I, I, I hope that everyone can say yes, because they've taken all the steps required to be able to say yes, um, that they don't have to pay, but, uh, but they might have to. Um, and, and that's the unfortunate reality. Luke, I can see you're itching here with something to well, say. I was just going to say, and they're a moving target too, right? Like they are, business enterprises, they don't have any particularly strong ethics in spite of what they might say at different times. Um, but their motivation is purely to make money. So they're constantly testing the market with different um, approaches, different techniques, different software, different targets in order to maximize their revenue stream. And not only do they have, you know, corporate structures and, um, you know, ticket systems and, and uh, customer facing personnel to deal with incoming revenue they have affiliate programs so they have to maintain their reputation not only so that people will pay them on the pinky promise as brett likes to say that their data will be deleted and not made public but they also have to maintain their reputation so that affiliates go with them as opposed to an, a competing cyber criminal gang what what is the relationship or the conversation look like during the hiring process into one of these criminal organizations. Maybe that's like a weird thing for me to be thinking about. But. I know I would suggest like, look at some of the stuff that John DiMaggio has written um, in his, in his ransomware diaries. Uh, he talks about it and he gets into depth uh, with Lockbit and it's really, really interesting um, because in, you know, when you, when you think of a company and these things are structured like companies, you think of a, you know, a fairly sane structure and, and behavior, but some of the stuff that he des designs is just, you know, batshit crazy. Yeah, so so some of the hiring processes are very, I would say, normalized, but um, they they also don't have gov There's no labor department telling them how to how to treat their employees. You know, I, you can actually. Um, this is not something you even need the dark web for. You can go out onto pretty much any. I'm not going to name names. Pretty much any commercial freelancing job board. Almost any, oh. probably all of them. And you can go search for technical jobs or even non-technical jobs, and you will find ransomware gangs hiring employees. They don't I wonder if some of them are. Yeah, you're, I'm cutting you they, off. They don't necessarily realize. advertise the positions yeah. that way, right. um, but they may ask you to do things that have no other explanation, or they may have they may have rationalizations around what they're asking people to do that are paper thin, right? Yeah. Interesting, wacky. Totally. Wacky. Yeah. You know, it, it's worth noting that that the affiliate relationship is actually a huge part of the, the these criminal organizations, because these criminal organizations, they're not 
you know, it's not like a corporate C Corp, you know, founded in Delaware with like a strict like shareholding relationship and, and like contracts. It is an affiliate sort of loosely related thing where you'll have Department A is run by a gang of 30 people. Department B run by a totally different gang of 30 people. And they've got these promises like, um, I promise I'm going to pay you. And as long as they uphold, uphold their promises, they, they keep working together. They've got other promises like, please don't attack the federal government of the U.S. We don't want the FBI knocking on our doors. And if if one of the gangs breaks the rules that the collective has agreed to, the collective falls apart. And we saw that recently after the um, the oil pipeline hack down south where the, the gang, um, the, one of the attackers broke a rule inside the affiliate network. They were not supposed to attack oil pipelines, but they couldn't they couldn't hold themselves back. It looked so juicy. They couldn't they wanted that. They wanted the ransom. And when the rest of the gang found out, they all ran for the hills. Um so I... I think it's important to note that those rules sometimes only exist for appearances sake. They are not adhered to in any way. And they exist because, for example, a gang that's perceived to attack hospitals for kids, what company wants to transact with them? What company wants to be seen to be directly funding that type of criminal operation. Um, so high-profile incidents, they tend to try and shy away from, simply in their own self-interest. But um, if the incidents aren't so high-profile, they will quite happily try and extort wherever they can. Lockbit, for example, claims not to attack hospitals, but We've seen them trying to nickel and dime a few thousand bucks out of a hospital in a low-income country. They will happily do that so long as it doesn't attract too much attention. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the best protection on for this is like going to the doctor and with a terminal diagnosis and saying, doc, what can I do? Right. <laughs> um, the, the thing you need to do it was was 10 years ago, or in this case, um, maybe just 10 months ago, right? Put the security in place you need before you need it. Uh, well, I mean, you need it now. Put the security in place before it's too late, right? Yeah, and we see this time and time again, especially for some reason with school districts. Um, after an incident, they will suddenly increase their budget. But that is really just catch-up spending. They are dealing with issues that should have been dealt with years ago. It's something we we're seeing a lot. Um, Matt and I have been on a couple conferences recently, and it, we we noticed um, a, a larger number of universities asking questions about cybersecurity. And my first thought was, uh, each time I didn't expect to see a university here, um, you know, somebody from their their school's department coming to learn about solutions um, is just not what I was expecting to see right away. But I mean, it starts to make sense. And then when you think about it, a lot of the younger generation are really good at, at a lot of this technological stuff. And I mean, I'm sure they get serious hacks, but I'm sure they get non-serious hacks as well. And, and universities are historically very open with their with their data and their systems. Like I'm, I'm sort of going back some time, but it, you, you used to be able to, you know, transfer files and access uh, different systems across a university with ease. So they would, you know, without some serious upgrading of their their process and 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 um, defense infrastructure, they would be ripe targets. So, so back to move it here. I, I don't know if anyone knows the answer. Um, Brad asks um, this question here, and I, I think what he's trying to ask is um, there are organizations, I think he's referring to the remove it vulnerability that, uh, that can scan for the move it vulnerability from the outside and say whether you are impacted and that they've seen some improvement. But I'm, I, I haven't seen that data. I don't know. Um, you know, is, are there showdown statistics on this? Um, on you know, are are people? Is this is this going forward? Do we think that 
the collateral damage is continuing or it just has, or we're just still just like cleaning up discovery really of, of damage that already happened? As far as I'm aware, there are no ongoing incidents. The problem has been put to bed now. But of course, the incidents that did happen in the past are still emerging and will continue to do so probably for months ahead. So um, I, I don't know if, um, I mean, I, f I feel like we've, you know, the after action here is <laughs> uh, pay attention to vulnerabilities, right? Maybe think carefully about um, putting sensitive data in a place that's directly accessible to the internet, right? Um, move things into APIs if you can. Um, clearly, you know, have all of the protections you need before you need them. Um, does anyone else have any sort of move it, leave behind uh, final notes here? I would also, I, I'll repeat what uh, I think Brett touched on. There, there's context, like what is your important data and, and information or assets? And what is the downside of, of, of someone gaining access to those? And, and that should sort of inform what kind of a defensive posture you should take. Uh, and then defense, Matt, as you said, I think defense should be implemented in layers so that if one layer fails, there's another layer. And um, it's, it's not an uncommon saying is that the bad guy in order to succeed would have to be able to break through all of those layers. Uh, although for you as a, as a company defending yourself, only one of those layers has to work in order for you to be protected. Yeah, I think right. it's also the case that organizations should assume that their perimeters will be breached and put in place mechanisms to know when that has happened and to limit the amount of damage that can be done when it does happen. So um, I feel like we covered that. Um, let's talk about MC for a second. And I, it's not the subject of the day, but I mean, you guys are eating and breathing this stuff. What is, have you guys been getting very involved in this? So you've been getting a lot of customer phone calls. Um, what's your sort of day to day? What, what was your play? What was your position in this? Uh, um, you know, from, from an industry perspective, what was your position during this, uh, this worldwide incident? Observers, it's that simple. Um, we tracked the statistics simply because they're quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, if you put your data on a basically a file server and the company that runs the software for the file server gives away your data, there's not much that you can do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a horrible situation. Um, but I mean, I was talking with with Zach before um, before we kicked off, and I have seen um, August has been a very very busy month, um, surprisingly so. And as you mentioned, Matt, it's our our 20th anniversary at MCSoft. MCSoft does endpoint protection and EDR, and as part of our 20th anniversary, we did a promotion from mid August to mid September, where we are making our uh, enterprise product, which comes with EDR available for our business product price. And that has had a lot of uptake. Now, is MoveIt driving some of that interest and some of that activity? Uh, you know, it, it's probably not hurting. It's, it's uh, I hate for something like that to be generating revenue, but you know, the revenue is always nice, but it's, it's well, been a really- is always an indication of market need, unfortunately. So at a and high level- it's been level. a very busy summer, yeah. So, it, so those enterprise features, um... Presumably, I mean, tell me what's the differentiator there that you're now releasing to this wider market here? Are these are these technologies that can go and find a um, leave behinds from um, an, an attack like what happened in the move it scenario? Um, well, in, in certain um, supply chain scenarios, yes, and certainly in certain malware scenarios, the EDR really implements a number of um it looks for a number of activities, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are defined by the MITRE attack framework. So our, our enterprise offering implements like literally thousands of those TTPs. So we're constantly on the lookout for things that can happen. Most of those things that happen, quite honestly, are not malicious. And that's sort of by design. If I type in, who am I on my computer? 
that's not malicious, but that will generate an event which is logged by our system and which will be uh, consolidated in our in our um, in our management view. But what Brett said, it's it's really the context. Has something changed? If you're looking at all of these notifications over time, all of the events over time, is there suddenly a lot of um, a lot of network discovery activity taking place on your network that wasn't there a month ago? That's the kind of thing you look for. And then you know, for the endpoint, we implement multiple layers of protection. We you know, typical traditional antivirus looks for signatures. We still have that because it's still the most effective way to find the malicious software that's out there and it represents 80 to 90% of the bad stuff. There's other stuff that's not known of, or you know, we haven't heard about it yet, we haven't implemented it. So we have another layer, which is behavior-based, which was in the CIS, um, uh, I think 10.8 or something like that. Look for behavior-based activity, and, and that sort of falls in line with the MITRE attack. Um, framework as well, look for specific behaviors that the threat actors are known to implement. And then again, with our enterprise product, the, the, the neat features that we've just rolled out or we're in the process of rolling out is actually if they get in and they're able to encrypt something before one of our other two layers is able to stop that process, we just implemented a rollback feature so that even if they start encrypting files, even if they delete, uh, delete the volume shadow copies so that you can't recover them, we maintain restore points so that you can do a rollback and get back your, your files. It doesn't unencrypt them. It maintains um, a moving window of your files. And when they start to get encrypted, we make a backup before the encryption takes place. That sounds like a critical tool in um, as part of an incident response procedure there is to have those tools at the exact moment you need them, right? To stop stop things sort of in their tracks. Yeah, ideally there, I mean, ideally the remediation is get rid of the malware, stop it and get rid of it. But then in the absolute worst case scenario, if they've been able to do something bad, then you want to be able to do that recovery as well. And there are a number of ways that you can do that. You know, you can have an, uh, a backup, you can have an offsite backup, you can have Windows restore points. This is just another layer in overall security um, stack that, that we think companies should really consider implementing to protect their data and protect their customers' data. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's not like these these other, you know, this this you're saying like this 10 or 20% of things that are not found by signatures. It's not like they can't be found by signatures, signatures right? The issue is really just that, Malware gangs are rolling new malware out every day. Um, new malware and, and the trying trying to obfuscate the way the malware is 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 yeah. is, is transferred so that like, this doesn't look like mal. I just saw one. There's uh, word files with macros being embedded in PDF files. <laughs> how how can we get past? Like I said, it's a constant um, feedback loop where the bad guys are trying to uh, get money and they're implementing technologies to try to circumvent the protection layers that companies like MCSoft are providing. Well, um, can't wait to talk to more customers that are taking advantage of those, um, those new enterprise features out in the, the, the business footprint. Um, uh, of course, uh, here at Fort Mesa, um, we say uh, we will help you capture or we will help you own your customer, customers or your clients' cybersecurity roadmap. Um, we perform gap analysis. Uh, we help organizations inform their end customers, uh, how, what security they have and what security they need. We help uh, service providers deliver that security, um, and then we help them evidence it all in software. Um, we have one last move it question here. Um, oh, it, it, how could we have protected against move it? it well, we, I mean, we covered that, you know, there's a lot of things we could have done, but, um, you know, the, the clearly stopping stopping an incident in its tracks, right? And isolating um, at the right time early is is something that could have at least limited the fallout, right? Um, you know, if you if you found the incident and you uh, and you stop it, you know, with, without before the attackers can extract the data or all the data, right? And and with Move It too, uh, I, I believe and I think Brett, you know more about this. There's different ways of implementing the the product, the the, the software. You could implement it on a server in house, or you could use it as a, as a cloud based offering. And if it's a cloud based offering, and you put your files up into a cloud, and there's a supply chain attack that makes those vulnerable to a to a threat actor. Honestly, off the top of my head, I can't think of what uh, what short term solution they would be in the early days of 
of the attack. Now, as as Matt, you mentioned, like a fix was out, a patch was out for MoveIt within days of the of the discovery of that of the vulnerability. So, you know, maintain maintain a, an update policy is probably yeah. Your, well, before the patch was out, before the patch was out, everyone was on notice. If you were paying attention, you were put on notice. The patch is coming. The patch is coming. The patch is coming. Then the patch came out. So it's really important to not only find the patches, but also pay attention to those high profile incidents that are embargoed um, so that you can be ready to move quickly. Um, pay attention to threat intelligence. Yeah. You got to be ready to move it. <laughs> All right. So All right. Wanna, <laughs> yeah, I'll, any, I'll uh, take us out on that. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This concludes another Friday at the Cyber Roundtable. Be sure to like us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube for more educational content. Thank you so much to Brett and Luke for joining us from MCSoft and what an awesome conversation about MoveIt and how to avoid being taken advantage by uh, those types of vulnerabilities. Be sure to come back next week where we have Ian Richardson from Richardson and Richardson Consulting to discuss how to conquer cyber price objections. Thank you all for joining us today and have a great weekend.